so fun to see so many of you again. Now, you probably had some trouble recognizing me. Um, I'll go on ahead and tell you what it is. I've got two new knees. And that's what it is. And you didn't even know who I was, did you? And did you see me walk up those stairs? Oh, yeah. You can tell that to my physical therapist. I got in big old trouble today. Okay, I was 45 minutes late for the appointment. And she didn't care that I was coming here. But anyway. So welcome to 2024. This is, is this okay? It's kind of like up my nose. But is it a, a but what? Um, this is why they invite me here is because I'm smooth. I'm a smooth speaker. Okay, so welcome to 2024. How do you feel when I say that? Um, I've learned a new trick of how to clear out a room really fast. Say, hey, have you all thought about any goals for this year? I had no idea that that question can be really, really intimidating. Because I love a new year. I don't know why I always fall for it. I think it's going to be different, so I love it. And I think of all the different ways um, that I want to be different next year. All the places in my life that um, I want to see changed. I want to see them transformed. Do you do that? Come on, you know you do. You know you do. You, you, you did that when you pulled the pants on today. You did that when you pulled those pants on. You thought some, two places that you felt needed to be changed. You know that. So this is just what the whole new year's about. But I want to know, when you see those places in your life that need to be changed, how do you feel about it? What do you do with that? Second, probably more important, where did you get those ideas about what needed to be changed? What is it that you measure yourself up against to decide that change is necessary? Because far too often we measure ourselves from some kind of an external standard rather than an internal one. And this is what causes us to live separate from our hearts, to be incongruent. Now let me illustrate, hang with me, I promise. This is a form of incongruence that I think, maybe no matter what your age is, maybe you're going to relate to this. Okay. I don't know if you remember this. Many, many years ago, I'm talking like maybe 30 years ago, when I first moved to town, there was, I don't even know if they still knew, do it now, there was a, a consignment sale, and it was called Mommy and Me. Do you remember Mommy and Me? Do you remember Mommy and Me? See? Only these chicks do. Okay. Anyway. So um, I had heard about it. I, I didn't know much about it. I didn't know how to prepare for it. I didn't know you were supposed to prepare for it. But um, I went on ahead. And uh, I pulled into the parking lot, and that preparation thing became real obvious that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I, I parked my car, and I started walking towards the entrance of the building, which, by the way, was a former Kmart. I mean, this, this is like the mecca of all consignment stores. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. The place was huge, uh, open for one week only. So, you know, as I'm walking in, I'm thinking, maybe I need a couple of things. I'm just kind of strolling in. And I noticed um, that every woman around me had gotten some kind of a memo, maybe, that I didn't get. Um, because uh, they were walking in there with things like track shoes and trash bags and bags that were on those little roller wheel things. And, um, I mean, it was, it was 
it was unbelievable. And so I was thinking maybe I'd just pick up a few items, but, but these women, they were here for, for the haul from heaven. And they were those well-trained Proverbs 31 women. And they had risen early and they were going to bring bargains from afar. And so I don't, I don't know what happened because my body, it just, it reacted before I was even conscious of any thought. Next thing I knew, I don't know, I had broken into an all-out sprint to the entrance, and I was leaping over strollers and small children and slower women, and I burst through that door covered with sweat. Now, see, here's the thing. Once you're in the door, you go immediately to the racks, and you go through the racks. Now, you don't decide whether or not you want to keep the thing or not keep the thing. You just keep throwing it on your well, thing that you were supposed to have, which I did not have. I'm throwing everything on my arm. And when you amass clothing about the size of mm, a minivan, then you're ready to go over. You leave the racks and you go into a secluded corner. And that's where you're going to dump everything out. And you're going to go and you're going to make your nay in your yay in your nay pile. But you don't do this by yourself. You do this with a group of complete strangers. And we all sit there. And we make comments. Like we say two things to each other like, don't even think about putting it back. Do you know how cute that's going to look on the Christmas card? Which is interesting because they're not going to know anything about the Christmas card because they're not going to get a Christmas card because I don't know these women. But for this moment, hey, these, these girls, they were, they were my comrades in the foxhole. And let me just say, um, I, I really felt like I was crushing it. I was, I was excited. No one would have guessed that this was my first time. I had a pile of boys' 3T clothing. It was huge. When I headed to that corner, um, it was then that I started coming out of, I don't know, I've had this happen before. Well, I, I call it a shopper's coma. And it, I started coming out of it just a little bit um, because this is when I remembered, I, I don't have a child that wears size 3T. <laughs> I had a 12-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter and a 3-year-old daughter and... But you know what? It was an impressive haul nonetheless. And I was proud to show it to my new friends. And they affirmed me. And I felt like I was in. And, and I don't know. Um, I don't know how I amassed, what all I amassed. Um, I didn't have any idea how I got it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it when I got home and how I was going to explain it to my husband. But the thing was, I was in. And so after waving goodbye to all my new friends and paying, that's when reality started setting in. And I thought, me. I mean, if that story had music to go with it, it would have been that switchfoot song, um, I am losing ground and gaining speed. Do you ever feel that way? Uh, where you find yourself running at a pace towards a goal, and perhaps it wasn't even chosen by you. It was chosen by somebody else, your spouse, your parents, your culture, your career. I don't know. Well, see, that's what happened to me on that day. I didn't know what I was running for. I didn't know what I was running towards. And without a strong sense of why I was doing what I was doing, I fell victim to that belief that if I didn't move in the same way and at the same pace as everyone else was around me, I would miss out. See, because if I'm shaped by the world around me rather than what is within me, I can end up living in a tremendous state of anxiety. Uh, because, I, and, and here's the thing, I'm not even conscious of it. But it's driving me nonetheless. Now that feeling of anxiety, it waxes and wanes. The anxiety is pretty high. 
when my life is not measuring up to that picture that I had. But then there are times, seasons, moments, when things are kind of, you know, they're kind of tracking along. And, and I'm hitting those benchmarks, you know? You know, what, what are the benchmarks? They're school and career and marriage and kids and 401k while you can still, you're still allowed to drive. And, and then when you're finished with your benchmarks, then what do you do? You pass them right on to your kids. Oh, here's the thing. You know what else you do? I'm learning this now. Then you pass them on to your grandchildren. It never stops. It absolutely never stops, those, those benchmarks. Um, but that is a dangerous way, dangerous way to live. It's also a really normal way to live. Many of us seek counseling because for some reason we didn't attain what we had hoped for, despite the fact that we tried our very best to do it right. We did A plus B, and we didn't get C. The marriage crumbled despite personal faithfulness and that promotion went to a younger candidate with less qualifications. And that child that you spent years sacrificing for is no longer speaking to you and won't let you see their grandchildren. See, that's when people come to a counselor looking for a way to figure out what went wrong and how they can fix it. And here's the thing. Counselors can amass very, very large practices very, very quickly if they offer hope that these well-researched books and tools and techniques can fix what's broken if the client is willing to work hard enough. But in doing so, we are furthering two toxic illusions. Number one, that we can control any one of those benchmarks. Because listen, try as we might, every single one of them, yours, your kids, your career, however it is that you define success for anyone or yourself, each factor of that level of success is inextricably tied to something that you are not in control of. Illusion number two. If we're doing it right, we and those we love will not experience deep suffering. See, that, those illusions and our belief in those illusions, that is what's creating anxiety. It's the illusion. It's not how you're dealing with life. It's the illusion of the way that you think that life is supposed to be. Now, I'm, um, I'm not suggesting that you need to learn to let go of control because here's the reality. <laughs> you never had it to begin with. Um, and the other reality, Scripture is real clear by both directly what it says and also the stories that it tells us. Suffering is not an if, it's a when. We are going to face hardship. Yeah, I know. I know what you're thinking. Uh, this is why counselors, they don't ever get invited to dinner parties because you're thinking, oh, great. Whose idea was it to hire a counselor to do a retreat? Everybody knows counselors are weird and they're Debbie Downers 
And, and this, I am already feeling worse than when I came in tonight. I have just signed up for a two-day infomercial, and she's probably going to have a bunch of business cards out there afterwards. Okay, listen, hang with me. I, I, you know, I feel the same way about counselors. Um, <laughs> hang with me, though. There's a different way. And the scripture points to it, Matthew 16, 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life... For my sake, you will find it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? Scripture informs us and our view of God. But our view of God also informs the way that we read Scripture. This one that I just read, it has in it both a warning, but also a promise. If we continue to hold to our definition of success as something that is rewarded, if we are willing to work hard enough, we are going to lose ourselves. And that is tragic. Because nothing, nothing is of more importance to our God than your soul. And the belief your belief that you are seen, that you are known, that you are loved, that you are not alone. The whole purpose of his death on the cross was to release you from that type of bondage that we put ourselves back underneath. If you're seeking to make life work as you define it apart from him, it's death. But When we realize what we're doing, we begin to experience the promise of release. Not just release of our lives, release of the bondage to get it right. And the feeling that that's on your head. See, that transformation that you desire, the change that that you might believe has to happen in order for you to thrive, it's not something outside of you. It's within you. It is not something outside that you need to strive to attain. It's already there within you. Now, that sounds a little bit like Oprah, didn't it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that out. I'm doing this again next weekend. So you're the guinea pigs, but I'm going to take that line out because that was a little Oprah. Okay. So we can't, we can't create transformation in ourselves any more than we can do it in those we love. On our own, this is the truth. We don't even know what needs to be transformed. Transformation is not our job, but God's. But while we don't have responsibility for it, we do have a role in it. We are called to cultivate personal transformation in our lives by having the courage to look into our own souls in the presence of a loving and transformational God. Who is more concerned with who we are becoming than the benchmarks that we hit. I'm going to say that again. Anytime I say something that I feel is particularly profound in the office, I always say to my clients, if they're not writing it down, I say, write that down. That was good. That was good. You're paying a lot of money for that right there. So I'm going to write that down. Our God is more interested in who you are becoming than the benchmarks that you hit. 
Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, which is fabulous, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, she defines the soul in this way. It's the you that exists beyond any role that you play, any job you perform, any relationship that seems to define you, or notoriety or success that you might have achieved. It's the part of you that longs for more of God than you have right now, the part that may, even now, be aware of missing God in the challenges of life. So personal transformation. It begins when we become connected with, become more aware of the condition of our own souls and what's going on there in the moment. That's what God called Adam and Eve to. In Genesis 3, they had sinned. And remember, God asks them two questions. First question, from the almighty, omnipotent, and sovereign God, he says, where are you? Well, that is not the question I would have asked. I would have said something along the lines of, how could you? But he asked, where are you? Because he knew he knew the design of Adam and Eve, and he, he knew that their actions were just a symptom of something in their hearts that had gone awry. And so he invites them in his presence, in their shame, to look deeper into their hearts. They did what they did because they believed the lie of the enemy. God is not for you. Adam hid because he was naked and ashamed. Then he asks the second question. Remember what that is? Who told you that? Adam and Eve. Did you ever think about this? They lost their way and they were living in paradise. I mean, I think it's understandable if you lose your way in Vestavia. I can say that because I live in Shelby County. We don't have any problems. But they were in paradise. And they lost their way anyway. So see, it's not where you live that pulls us off course. But being unaware of the truth of our hearts and living out of and listening to something other than God. So I want to ask you, where are you? Who told you who you should be and how you can achieve that? Who told you that? Now, even as I just asked those questions, what emotions our thoughts are coming up in you. Fear? Or maybe this thought? I don't know, and maybe I don't want to know. Why would I bother opening up that kind of a Pandora's box? Well, because scripture, it really answers why we should look deeper. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all you do. Where do we tend to place our emphasis? On the do. But what he's saying here is, heart, remember, is a combination. In the scripture, heart is a combination not just of emotion, but also of thought and choices. Behavior comes as a result of the emotion, which comes as a result of the thinking. So this is the way it works. You're going to hear this again and again and again. And after I die, it's going to be on my tombstone. 
which isn't going to be there. I forgot. Anyway, that's another story. But okay, you, you have an event that occurs. You have a thought about the event. That thought drives your feelings, and the feelings is what's driving your behavior. So here, what, here's what the problem is, right? When we start at changing the behavior, it's, it's almost cruel. It really is. It's cruel. Just tell someone, stop doing that without dealing with why they're doing that. That's unkind. It's like trying to put a beach ball underwater. I know you know that. My practice, it's largely made out up of very well-trained evangelical believers, much like you, who don't understand why they do what they do because they know better. But here's the thing. What we know, it's not necessarily what we live out of. We live out of our hearts, which are not only informed and shaped by knowledge, but also by experience, the impact of living in a broken world. Wounds left unattended make it difficult for truth to take deep root in our hearts. So see, it's, it's really not a matter of trying harder but allowing Jesus to illumine the answer to God's question. Second question in Genesis 3, who told you what you are living out of? What false messages, thinking, are creating your emotions, which is creating your behavior? God's inviting us to become curious about why we're doing what we're doing rather than merely condemning what we're doing. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Heart awareness is a skill, which means it's not a gift, it's a skill. We learn it. Um, you need to learn about you. Not the you you want to be. The you that you are. When you go to the mall, <clears throat> remember, okay, this is, I'm showing my age, but this is the way it should be. This is the way it'll be in heaven. Remember, when you're trying to get to a store, you do not pull up an app. You go to one of those little directory things, and the little directory thing has a red dot. What does the red dot say? You are here. That's right. Because you learn where you're going to go based first on where you are. So when my clients come in, I actually teach them, let's begin with, where's your red dot? I do this because I, I can't help anyone change their present level of functioning until they become aware of the feelings and the thoughts that brought them there to begin with. So we work backwards. We're going to practice. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to make you talk to your neighbor. Okay, but we are going to practice. I want you to try now to separate from everything that happened before you came to this moment and everything that you left behind as you sit here right now. What emotion are you feeling? What emotion are you feeling? <laughs> I wish you could see. Every day. I get it, I get it, I get it. Okay, where in your body do you tend to hold that 
emotion. And then finally, what thoughts are linked to the feelings that you're having? It's not easy, is it? Now see, if I had asked you what had been happening in your life before you came into this room, you would be able to answer that very, very quickly because we're highly aware of what's going on outside of us. That's the way we tend to orient, by what is outside of us rather than what is inside of us. That is living apart from your heart as we focus on what's around us. That's like driving a car, always looking through the windshield and never looking at the indicator lights. God has designed us with an incredible system of indicator lights to help us become aware of our hearts. We have three. Our emotions, our feelings, and our thinking. Does that sound familiar? That's Proverbs 4.23 right there, okay? So whether you're paying attention to those indicator lights or not, they're lighting up at important moments, and they are alerting you that something's happening, something's happening within you, pull over, pop the hood. For example, um, perhaps as you came to this gathering tonight, your stomach or your chest was kind of feeling tight, like number one, physical feelings. And you felt somewhat anxious, like number two, emotion. As you began to think, like number three, thoughts of all that you had left behind in order to come here and all that you're going to be going back to. And you're kind of thinking, is it even worth it, right? Thinking something like this, why did I come here? Do, do, do I even know anyone? Where am I going to sit? Who am I going to talk to? And as fast as those lights are going on, you begin to shame yourself, saying something like this. What am I? A middle schooler? What is the problem with me? All right? And that, right there, when you start talking like that to yourself, that's when awareness shuts down. It's over. Now, many of you have been taught that thoughts like that are um, from the enemy or, or an inner critic that resides in your head whose purpose is to torment you. Um, so your response then is to shut them down as fast as you can, either by shaming them, which is the example I just used, or by putting truth on top of them. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest a different way. Um, because if you do that right away, you're going to miss some really important information that those indicator lights have to tell you about what's going on in the deeper parts of us that need to be attended to. What are y'all sitting all the way over there for? My goodness, that is such a bad place. Okay. So these thoughts and the emotions that they create, they are derived from a part of your brain that stores memories of dangerous situations. They have fi- that brain has files of dangerous situations, memories that you've experienced in your past, and that part of your brain is going to make sure that that does not happen to you again. It is always seeking to make sure that those dangers are warded off. I call that part of your brain the protector. The protector. She is always scanning, scanning, scanning 24-7 to detect any sign of previous danger. So that's why when we move move away from a hot stove, because we got burned, and we don't even think about it, do we? Uh, Chances are, 
If we were hurt, we're not going to get anywhere near it. The protector picks up danger signals and literally will move you without any conscious thought of your own to a different place. When the protector detects danger, your brain is signaled to go one of three places, I'm sure you know, fight, flight, freeze. So the protector part of your brain is the way that God designed you. It is a good thing. He designed you with that part of your brain to protect you from harm. But now, that design has been distorted. As children living in a broken world, we experience from a variety of sources pain, wounding. Um, Listen, our experience is going to vary widely, but none of us escaped childhood unharmed. And so we created back then adaptive strategies to protect ourselves. As children, those strategies were very necessary. Very necessary. That's what helped you survive in a world you were struggling to make sense of. So you wrote them as a three, as a four, as a five-year-old. It made sense then. But what was adaptive as children is now maladaptive as adults. For example, not speaking up in your family of origin because peace was the rule was a smart way to stay safe. But now, as an adult, see, if I'm still trying to keep peace by silencing myself, I'm not bringing all of who I am to my world that needs my voice. So how do you recognize when you're operating out of an outdated strategy? Or when something in the present is being directed by your past? When you have, I would say, a strong response that doesn't seem to quite fit the situation, it seems to be a little stronger than the situation might ordinarily call for. Um, You can be assured that you are no longer just in this moment. You are also somewhere in the past. That's this moment is reminding you of, and so you are, in fact, probably more back there than you are right here because the protector has identified something in the present that is similar to the past. And so what happens? Your indicator lights start going off. As soon as the protector discovers that, the indicator lights are going off. Now here's the problem with the protector. The protector does not know how to discern the difference between past and present. So, if we do not pay attention to our indicator lights, the protector is going to send us into a response that's not really what's needful and can actually be harmful. For example, um, you might not even come back tomorrow. Flight. Or um, you might stay maybe in the periphery of the room looking on your phone until you have to sit down, and that would be an example maybe of a freeze. Or perhaps one of my first personal favorites, and that would be fight. And perhaps a fight response when you're feeling nervous about this this gathering might be that you see a woman and you run up to her and you say something like, Amy, oh my gosh, it has been years. I hardly recognize you. How have you been? And Amy, she looks a little confused. I'm so tired of that look. I get it all the time. Confused. And and you, she says, my, my name isn't Amy, it's Janice. And we sat together last week at an all-day seminar. Now, why would you choose any of those responses? Why would you choose any of those? Because you're not choosing. 
the protector is choosing for you. That executive functioning part of your brain, where thinking occurs, it's turned off. And you are now acting just plain out of survival. And your brain is moving you to a safe place. Fight, flight, or freeze before you even know what is going on. Unless you learn to start paying attention to the indicator lights that are letting you know the protector has picked something up. And that protector at that point is in need of you to speak back to it. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow in order to stay regulated rather than reactive. But the protector, she's not the only part of you. She's just the loudest. There are other parts of you that you need to hear from as well. Um, think of your brain as a conference room table, large conference room. And there's little parts of you around that table. When something happens, protector's screaming. So you don't, don't shame her. Don't say, shut up, get thee behind me, Satan, and slap a Bible verse on her. Because here's the deal. When you do that, guess what? She gets louder. And again, she is there for your protection. It's just misguided. Okay, so you can say, okay, I hear you. Step back, step back just a moment. Hey, anybody else here got anything to say about this conference tonight? Any other part of me have anything to say? And you're going to be surprised because I'm um, longing. She's going to raise her hand. And she's going to say something like, uh, I want to have an opportunity to connect with other women. I want to begin to move outside of myself. Or faith. He, he's here with me. I'm not alone. Now, mind you, every single one that talks, the protector goes after. Are you see? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, no, no. Don't you even. Okay, and again, you can hold off, hold off. Okay? Or how about exasperation? She raises her hand and she says, I am tired of staying safe. I am lonely. When I start hearing those other parts of me, I'm able to move out of my deepest desires rather than just the loudest ones. So it's important. You understand this. You're not telling yourself what to do. You are listening to your deepest desires. Now, I know. I know. That's real Oprah-like, isn't it? And I know you're thinking, oh, Live out of my deepest desires. Boy, is that some dangerous advice. Are you crazy? If I lived out of my de deepest desires, I would end up unemployed, in jail, weigh 450 pounds, and that is where my deepest desires would take me, right? Those are not, those are not your deepest desires. Those are what you pursue when you forget who you are. When you have lost your way, that's where you go. But that is not who you are. And that is not your deepest desire. According to Ezekiel 36, 26, listen, you received more than an entrance to heaven upon your conversion. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You received a new heart.
I didn't say you were living out of it. I said what the scripture is said is true of you. Regardless of whether or not you are living out of it, this is what is most fundamentally true. That means that your greatest desire is not those other foolish things. Your greatest desire now is the same as Christ. You want to make God bigger in your world. Because Jesus, he came to earth for one reason only, and that's so that we could watch how he loved, so that we could get a glimpse of the way that God loved us. That's why Jesus came, plain and simple. And then you know what he says? Now you do it. Because my spirit is in you. The capacity that I have to do that, you have as well. New desire, new capacity. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Chosen, set apart, God's special possession called to participate in a larger story that he is orchestrating. Is that the way you see yourself? If not, who told you the story that you're living out of? What you listen to and believe regarding who you are, that is what you will behave out of. The enemy, he cannot steal your identity. He can steal your understanding of your identity. But if you listen to his voice, he will teach you. Look at your performance to define who you are. And if your performance is anything like the woman standing behind this podium, then you will feel like an imposter rather than one who's chosen. I'm working with a dear man who told me I could tell you this. As a matter of fact, he was really excited about you hearing about this. Um, but this, this man, he had, um, he had what I would call an obsession with his, his, his badness. Um, he got that total depravity part of Tulip. Um, and, and you would think that uh, perhaps this would mean that since he saw his badness, this would make him want to change so bad that he would change so quick. And he did. He wanted to change so much. But his preoccupation with his sin patterns actually kept him locked in them. He kept simply acting out of the way he viewed himself over and over and over again. He saw himself a sinner with a bad heart, bad heart, bad heart, bad to the bone. Um rather than a redeemed sinner with a new heart. And I just kept slamming up against that with him over and over and over again. Till one day, a memory came to him as he was sitting there. Um, and he recognized for the first time who was telling him who he was. He said, it happened the first day of seventh grade. The teacher, she had me and two other boys in the class stand up. And she said to the class and to us, I know all about you. 
you are troublemakers, and you will not pull those antics in my class. She named him. She had heard of his past performance, and that performance defined her view of him. And from that day on, he lived into that identity that she had pronounced over him. Now, as heartbreaking as that story is, I know that each of you have one similar to it. Perhaps not as huge as that, but little moments repeatedly through your life add up to big moments, as big as that. It's significant. Your story is not about what you have done. But unfortunately, your brain will listen to those taunts, store them, and then speak to you when you fail in a voice extremely similar to the voice from the past. And it also tends to say things extremely similar to what was said to you in the past because that's the way that the protector works. Our story, our theology, let me just say this, our theology um, cannot be changed by learning more. Your theology is formed not just by what you learn here, beautiful as it is, but your theology is also significantly formed by what your story and what you have chosen to believe. It is these two things intertwined. So, <clears throat> and hear me say, I know what the truth is. You know what the truth is. But I also know that it's significantly more complex than saying, I'm a new creature now. You are a new creature now. That is true. Problem? You don't know you're a new creature. See? I'm not saying the scripture is untrue. I'm saying it's more complex than you just need to work harder to believe. Because there's elements of your story that have everything to do, just like that man, with why aspects of the gospel are hard for you to grasp. So I don't want you to see, I don't want you to see that this is a bad thing. I, I kind of hope that uh, maybe that helps understand that um, you're not crazy, bad, wicked, evil, dysfunctional. That's why I would describe myself on many days, so I do understand that, but um, Jesus invites you to true transformation, which begins by answering those same questions. Where are you? Who have you been listening to? And he invites you to that in kindness, kindness. Let him illumine what's going on because our soul, it'll find rest when we're able to hear the gospel. Because listen, if it's about you and your performance, no wonder you have so much anxiety 
That makes so much sense. Of course you do. Listen, that's not just a, that's not a bad self-image. That's reality. <laughs> if it's about you, you're in deep trouble. Your anxiety is well-placed. But here's the gospel. If it's about you, you're in trouble. Thank God. It's not anymore. How did you feel when I said that? I'm too far away from you, but often if I'm closer to audiences, what I hear, I'm serious, is a collective sigh. A sigh. The gospel, I don't believe, empowers this as much as it relieves us. Oh, for a moment there I thought, it's not anymore. And that's the beginning of true rest. rest. And, And hey, you know what happens when that rest, that new identity starts sinking in? You know what the result is? You're going to start entering into your calling, declaring to everyone in your world, from the Walmart cashier to the one you eat dinner with, who it is that called you out of darkness into light. And that, that is the point. Congruence in our lives comes from when we believe what he did defined us as who we are. And then that moves us to what we were created for. So that's what our time together is going to be about. It is not only about your healing. Is it about your healing to the glory of God so that you can take your place as a chosen one to make him known to others who are living in darkness, longing for light. And do you get that? So that's what we're going to do together. I think, I don't know, I'm going to go home tonight and um, I'm going to um, finish the rest of tomorrow because that's the way this girl works. And yes, she did tell me in August and I'm telling you, I've been working, I've been working. It just, I can't tell the spirit when to move. So I will see you bright and early for that walk on the trail in your dreams. So enjoy you coming up. Huh? I'm singing? Did she say that? Nobody told me that. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Are you singing? Uh, Not today.